Welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. This is COVID pandemic recording, so you may hear the odd weird noise like crows or my neighbor's kids or a lot of times my guest's kids and sometimes this little schnauzer that's next to me, Minette. And it's an exercise in acceptance. I'm your host, Janet McKenna. Social media is just kind of weird. It's got so much astonishing stuff to offer and then it can be such a massive cognitive drain. I don't even really understand how I feel about it. Like all technologies, it takes a bunch of years before anyone can can deal. But one thing that happened recently was one of those really strange Twitter things where for you know, 24 hours, something erupts and is dealt with and goes down. And then there's some backlash and forelash and whatever there is. And then it's gone. It's just like this little, this little thing that happens. What's been interesting to me is that in a world that I was taught is always going downhill and you can constantly get validation for that. The thing that happened just a few days ago which is, I'm sure, completely forgotten by the world now, was really great evidence about how it's not only not going downhill, but there's a whole social organic movement to bring us somewhere else. And this little weird event is called the Bean Dad Incident. It started just a few days after New Year's, when some guy who's had some success as a composer, I guess, and, and podcaster, live tweeted an incident that happened at his house. He has a nine-year-old daughter. And to say on one side, I will, when you have kids of that sort of middling elementary age, especially your older kids, they are the next oldest people in your house. And it's really easy to think as if they are more capable than they are because they're the, except for you, they're the next most capable that are way out of whack. If you met a stranger's nine-year-old, you would never have those expectations. It's also a really natural place of disjointedness. You live with this person, you know them so well. You're carrying baggage that you do not see because you know them so much, because they know where your buttons are, you have a tendency to forget how at nine, the way your parents treated you is something you still have problems with, that you think they were completely out of line, and yet having kind of disassociated yourself from the experience of your kids, having power over your kids, you flip it, you continue it. That's the mechanism that mistreatment of kids goes along. And mistreatment of kids is everything from a forgivable and apologized for one-off unusual circumstance where you're tired and you just did something, screamed at your kids, made them feel bad, that kind of thing. It's all the way from there to ardent abuse, to sadistic abuse. It's, it covers the whole range. So that's, that's my little preface to this. So what Bean Dad did was his daughter was hungry she came in and she wanted something to eat and she's nine years old. So why can't she just fix herself something to eat? Well, why can't she? She's nine. The reason she can't is twofold. One, 
she may not know how. And two, nine-year-olds are also coming into their power and may want something done for them. The trick for parents is to not immediately assume that a nine-year-old is being manipulative, but to understand that their kid is very smart. We would do the same if we could, if we can. It's this blind spot that this guy went way down the bad rabbit hole on. He tossed her a can of beans and a can opener and told her to figure it out. And then he live tweeted it. He told her he was busy working on a puzzle. She spent six hours trying to figure this out before she got it. And this guy proudly, smugly, and of course, this is where I'm really going to be done with the guy, contemptuously talked about her in terms that are grounds for divorce if your spouse talks about you like this. He talked about her so humiliatingly because we don't know anything about this kid. She may, in fact, have undiagnosed motor coordination, especially given how how he ripped her apart, her personality apart, that she's always like this. You don't like this child. Where he covered himself is what I said before. Sometimes nine-year-olds are manipulative. As an adult, you have to step aside from that. You're just not a target for it. You can assume that they will try it, not that they are it. And I think that's true of all bad behavior or all what might be perceived bad behavior. A smart kid will try it. That's fine. But at heart, at real, at base, they are lovable and loved. And the other part of this was this guy smugly, oh, he had, he had so many tweets on this. This thing was so long. Kept referring to this and, and, and covering this very bad parenting on his part by calling it a teaching moment. He didn't teach. He didn't teach her how to use the can opener. Teaching someone how to use a can opener means leaving a puzzle, which frankly can stay there for decades without any harm. And showing her how it's done and giving it to her to try. And maybe if you're feeling particularly homeschooly, explaining to her about levers and gears a little while you do it. In other words, he could have chosen to build their relationship. And she might still be whiny and she might still try to get away with something. But teaching would be the work of a few minutes. He starts it. He says, you know, it's kind of tricky to start when you have small hands and then show her how the key works to twist it around. And before opening it, give it to her. Have her try it. When she gets to the end of that, she will have learned how a can opener works. And the next time something is canned, he can say, hey, try that again. Let's see how you do on it. So let's see what you remember. That would be a teaching moment. Live tweeting smugly while a hungry nine-year-old tries to get into a can of beans? That is mistreatment. That is not the kind of mistreatment of a tired parent who snapped and apologized. And we know that because he spent a very long time and a lot of effort on live tweeting his contempt. It was interesting. And the reason I find it I mean, I want to say I find it heartening, not for this particular girl. The teaching moment for her is that her parents are untrustworthy and they do not love her. Her father doesn't love her and has deep, deep contempt for her. What she won't learn until much, much later, if she learns it at all, was that her own father was treated contemptuously 
unloved and now does not love himself and cannot fully express love for her. The backlash was very interesting. And this is where it does become heartening. Well, the front lash, first of all, was a sound disapproval for doing this to his daughter. I would say 99%, at least what I saw, on the child's side. This is not teaching. This is not a teachable moment. This is a smug guy getting some kind of thrill out of making a hungry child frustrated and humiliated. And he loves it. And he keeps pushing it under that blanket of teachable moments when it most decidedly is not. The backlash was interesting for the number of people who themselves have not examined what was done to them and continue to perpetrate it on other people who are willing to take that excuse of teachable moment. One person that I got into a discussion with wanted to tell me that this is how you learn perseverance. It's not how you learn perseverance. This is how someone forces you to learn what they define as perseverance, but you cannot sustain it on your own later because you do not have an inner well of regard for yourself to persevere. You can learn under a weight of deep contempt. You learn the wrong lessons and you don't learn really well. Like it's a weight. You're not getting the best out of the learning. So I did find it really heartening for the future to see the reactions that this got. And I guess really unsurprisingly, people started looking at Bean Dad's tweets and found that he's a really unsavory person in general. He's racist, he's bigoted, he's anti-Semitic, and he thinks all of that's very, very funny. So trauma leaks out, and it certainly leaks on Twitter if you do not have the self-awareness that leads you to realize that you shouldn't tweet this stuff. So many people thought that it was blown out of proportion. Sure, that's possible. Although it's funny. My first thought was these are people whose parents were then not like this and they can't believe it. But the thing is, people whose parents were really the the very base, which is attentive and curious, people whose parents had a good view of them, people whose parents were not themselves dealing with all this stuff. And I have to tell you, as I get older, that percentage is not high. They are pretty empathetic. People whose parents did treat them like this, who do the mental gymnastics of it must be the child's fault, it must be a fake story, all of that is deflection. And people were called on it. And the guy himself was called on it. He was called on this original thing. Then people found out how vile he's been in public for a long time, and they called him out on that. And he shut down his Twitter account. And we'll ride it out and eventually come to some other place. Will he learn from it? That's a really good question. So what a lot of times people get a dopamine hit from if they do have, if they are sort of leaking their trauma, the dopamine hit is people fighting with them. That's trolling online. And while he was doing all this, the more people said to him, this is no way to treat someone you love the more he doubled down on how great of a person he was, which is, of course, why finding how vile he's been was kind of a triumph for people. 
there is a teaching moment in all this. There is the, the fact that his daughter learned that her father doesn't have her back. But the real teaching moment here is for him. A lot of people have to reach absolute total social bottom before they can get to a point where they can start learning something, where they can try learning something. And who knows, maybe that's this guy. What I hope is that he does take it as a teaching moment and finds out what teaching really is. But the discussion that it sparked is the place where I get very, very optimistic. Most people thought this was terrible. And it was. Fewer people thought it was acceptable. Oh, that's a great direction for us to go in in humanity. But then a lot of people started picking up, where else does this happen? I read through some people talking about their college professors, PhD and grad programs. In fact, somebody wrote in a very funny manner about their grad program, which was the grad student says I'm hungry and the (laughs) professor says, write your thesis. And the student says, I don't know how. And the professor says, no, you just do it. And I keep telling you you're wrong. I love that this was outed as part of all of this. This is this relationships are all teaching moments. That's all they are. Are you going to teach people to continue this relationship or teach them to shut you down and have nothing more to do with you? That daughter, if this is how he treats his daughter, and he clearly does because he wrote about it publicly, thinking, thinking it would be sort of edgy, funny, thinking he'd troll people, but also most people would get it on some level means that their relationship is one in which she will not show up at holidays if she comes to a point where she can draw her own boundaries. And while we'd rather that she didn't go through this mistreatment now, the fact that is that there is this colossal outpouring of support for her. And then beyond that, a colossal conversation. And it was, it was about 15 hours of conversation about the relationships we form, about what teaching actually is. So here's an interesting thing that I would be very happy to see come out of all this, a better definition of teaching, because people are right. This is considered teaching. It's a perversion of teaching. And the fact is we don't have good language to designate that what mistreatment of children re-narratized as teaching. We don't have another word for the teaching where you are actually allowing kids to grow and grow yourself and grow the relationship. We don't have any real good language on that. Teaching can be covered over by the mistreatment of children. Teaching can be historical teaching where kids were beaten until they learned something. It can be used. It's such a blunt word and it covers so many things. There is no nuance and there is no good way to designate the teaching that allows people to grow and get somewhere else and develop. And that is so radically different than making a nine-year-old hungry and frustrated, trying to figure something out without anyone showing her how to do it, just telling her that she's wrong all the time. That is a long way from teaching. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this story today is because my guest is a homeschooling father. 
And when I talked to him, I said, you're kind of a unicorn. I hear from homeschooling moms all the time. As a homeschooler myself, the management, the creation, the whole, the whole everything of homeschooling was mine to do. And everyone around me, when I looked for support, was women. It falls into women's care. And there's no reason for it. And it is, in fact, unfortunate because if the majority of that, if it's not shared, then the relation, the relationship between parent and child is changed. I loved and I grew and I developed so much from the opportunity to homeschool. And fathers will do that too, if they choose to. It's a little bit like when a father's found with a, you know, stroller in the park and people say, oh, that's so wonderful. It is wonderful, but it's wonderful when mothers do it too. And the idea that somehow they shouldn't develop these relationships with their kids is a massive loss for both parent and child. So I love finding homeschooling fathers who are involved in the decisions, who are attentive and curious about their kids, who build their relationships. I'm thrilled to talk to fathers that are the exact opposite of being dad, that are people that are all of us who said, don't do that. All of us who said, that's not the way to do it. All of us who said, there's a better way to do it. And my guest today is one of those fathers. Today is Rocky Lalvani, dad of two, business success specialist, and homeschooler. Thanks for joining me today, Rocky. Thanks so much for having me, Janet. So tell me a little bit about uh, the work that you do. Let's start with that because then we'll have to talk about how you balance that with the homeschooling. So essentially, what I do is work as a fractional chief profitability officer for small businesses. So I was shocked to learn most business owners don't look at their financial statements. They don't want to be accountants. Hmm. The problem is if you're not looking at your reports, then you're probably not spending appropriately and you'll find yourself in financial trouble. So I look at their reports and then I talk to them in a way that's different from how their accountant would because I understand their language and what they're trying to accomplish. And I, I show them where the best opportunities are in their business to make the most profit and where they might be spending time that is actually costing them money. So we make wiser decisions. Ah, got it. And then how many businesses do you work with at any given time? I, I will only work with uh, a maximum of 20 businesses at a time because that's just my limit. And I calculated it based on how many hours a month I wanted to work, and that's what it came out to. Mm, mm. And so, yeah, and you have two kids. What are their ages? So my kids are now 18 and 20, and they are both in college. So okay. we're done with the hard part. Yeah, yeah. And and have you been doing, were you doing this work when you were homeschooling? I was not. I had, well... For part of it, I guess, just towards the end of my son's homeschooling, I was. Before that, I was working in corporate. And oh, so okay. I, I did have a regular job, but I had a lot of flexibility with my job. And that was on purpose because I wanted to make sure that I had time to be able to be with my kids, coach their sports, go to their events and do that. So I built my life with that in mind is to have time freedom. 
because that's the ultimate. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how long did they homeschool? So both my kids only homeschooled full time uh, for two years each. So it was 11th and 12th grade. Now, hmm. when I say they only homeschool for two years, every summer from before they even started school, we homeschooled in the sense hmm. of at the end of a school year, we would go to the teacher and say, what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? And we could look at the the work that they were doing, too, and we could say, you know, where are they struggling in school and where are they doing well in school? And so over the summers, we would create programs to address the weakness, but then we would also program to push the strength further on so that when they went back to school, their strengths they could crush and that would give them the time freedom to work on their weaknesses mm -hmm. so that if they needed to have extra time because that was an area they weren't so strong in, then they could at least know, hey, I got all this thing that everyone else found hard done quickly, and now I have the time to deal with some of the other stuff. So we've always been focused on teaching our kids, and especially in the gaps that school doesn't teach, mm -hmm. and pushing them further and faster into areas that they love. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting you should say that because one thing I've been hearing a lot of lately is, a, you know, a major gap in just American education is teaching kids about finance. And that's what you do. <laughs> it is. So we, we talk about that a lot. And it's a major topic that I talk to a lot of people about. We are not taught money in school. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. And then on top of that, I, I have an MBA. They didn't teach us how to build wealth and they didn't teach personal finance in college or in my mm. master's program. Mm. So what I do to help business owners now is not something that is taught generally in schools. And that's why I think so many people struggle. Even my wife's an accountant. She's a CPA. But if you went to her to figure out how to build wealth, she wouldn't know how to do it. She knows how to do tax returns and fill out forms, but she doesn't know how to build wealth. Yeah. Yeah, that is really interesting. That piece is missing. I know that um, my kids were interested at one point, and I, and I was. They were like, what is the stock market? And I realized I have no idea. And we ended up spending a bunch of months sort of, you know, we got a little bit of money and we put it into a stock and went through it, read a bunch of books. But I remember just being like, this is 100% foreign to me. Why have I been reading the news for this long? <laughs> no idea. And and that's very possible. I mean, my son's on Robin Hood. He's constantly trading and, and doing all of that. And I'm like, you know what? You have a little bit of money. Go play. Yeah. Because how else are you going to learn how to do this? And how else are you going to learn the emotions of winning and losing in the stock market? Because what people don't realize, when you lose money in the stock market, it sets off the same part of your brain as fight or flight. And so wow. it causes you to freak out emotionally and you have to learn to control yourself. And it takes, you know, it's, it's like playing golf, right? You wow. have to play to learn the game. You can't read a book. So go play and learn. And, you know, if he makes a couple hundred bucks or loses a couple hundred bucks, who cares? He's learning a skill that will s serve him so much more. That's interesting. And then, so what led your kids to decide to homeschool or what led you to decide to homeschool your kids when they were in high school? What led to that decision? My kids were in a private school. They were in a classical education school. And uh -huh. so they were 
always kind of on a more advanced track. And my daughter really started to struggle in 10th grade. There were some changes at the school partially. And partially it was like, they're giving me all this work to do. And the work that I'm doing isn't fun. Mm. It's not serving me. And it literally was draining all her energy. So here's a person who's normally energetic and get stuff done, just feeling miserable. And I think we might have even gone and gotten some blood tests done, this and that, just to make sure there wasn't any problems per se medically. And it just turned out that School started to tar- turn into a soul sucking, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and she's like, so we started searching at that. You know, we're not the people to say, OK, so we started searching. We like you go search. We looked at other schools. And we're like, mm-hmm. nobody else is going to like same problem, different place. Mm-hmm. Um, we looked at some online programs. We looked at some we looked at a variety of different things. And what eventually came back was here are the requirements that the state says I need to meet. I can figure out how to meet these and I'm going to handpick what I want to learn and from where and from who. So let's find the best of the best. And so she went out and she found different types of programs. One of them was a rhetoric class where she learned Ah. to write at a higher level. And she was always a great writer, but she never got, she's like, okay, here's your paper. You got a 97. What I do wrong. You did great. Right. She takes this rhetoric class and literally the entire paper is covered in red. And she's like, finally, somebody's (laughs) teaching me how to do something. Like I'm getting feedback and I can learn how to improve. And so that gave her that freedom to do that. And then a lot of things she did, she got to play in the adult world. So rather than doing things at a kid level, she started doing things at the adult level. So our local town has a young professionals group. And as part of that, they had a philanthropy program. That's teaching cool. young people. It's, it's for 20 to 30 year olds. You know, how do you do philanthropy? How do you uh, go through that whole process? And we had a robotics team. So part of robotics is fundraising. We raised, I think, like $50,000 over five years. So you got to write grants and do that. So how do you learn to do that? Well, go join the philanthropy program. So here she is at 16, 17, hanging out with adults, learning what they're learning in their environment, which is quite different than the high school environment. And then she she got to go to a lot of self-development things. So she got to go see Tony Robbins. They have a program for teenagers to go through his event. She got to go see Brendan Burchard. Um, who does High Performance Academy. She got to go hang out with Seth Godin, who does a ton in marketing. And actually, I I encourage every parent to Google Seth Godin, Stop Stealing Dreams, because it talks about the problem in education. And I think it will open your eyes as to what we have to deal with. So she got to go learn and play at a much higher level. And when we got to co- to to the college side, she was applying, her friends were applying, and what we noticed was they didn't care about anything she did. All they cared about was her GPA and her class rank and her SAT scores. And that's how they huh. handed out money, at least huh. in most colleges. Now, if you're in the top tier Ivy League, you know, they're going to look for other things, but 
they're looking for a story to tell. Well, hey, I walked on fire. She's got a story to tell, right? She can right. she can say that. But we realized that college was a game too. And I've started to encourage my kids, like, are you sure you want to go to college? It's a lot of money. Maybe you don't have to. <laughs> right, right. And did you consider community college? I know of a fair amount of high schoolers who just go do that at 16 instead of finishing up high school. So that's what we did with son, my second child. So uh -huh. we, we found out from her and going through the college process that this whole thing is a joke. And I'm like, okay, if we're going to play the game, then let's play it well. So we went to him and said, guess what? The end of 10th grade, you're not going to high school anymore. Mm. He already was taking some dual enrollment college classes. Mm -hmm. I said, guess what? You want to build robots. That's what you love doing. That's go spend time building robots and spend the rest of your time in community college at $125 a credit instead of some ungodly amount and crank out your credits. So yeah. we had to decide in 10th grade, we had to start picking colleges because we wanted to make sure that all the college credits would get accepted, that we were taking the right classes, that they would match up. Right. So we did all of that. So he graduated with 49 credits. Okay. And because he was doing community college and a lot of it was online, guess who's ready for the world of COVID? <laughs> yeah. Right? So yeah. he's he was supposed to go off to university. He's like, I'm not sitting in a dorm room taking classes on Zoom. I can stay home, <laughs> save a ton of money, and take classes on Zoom. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about balancing work, community, and creativity. Yeah. He's like, why do I need to go, you know, be isolated and spend a fortune to do that? And some of his friends have done different things. Some of them took a gap year. So he stayed home and he's, he's just cranking it out. And he knows because my kids have learned how to study and how to learn, they don't need the teacher. They just need to know, what do you want me to do? Okay, I can figure out how to do this. I can read the book. I can learn online. I can figure out if you're not teaching me well, how to supplement your teaching with somebody else's because there are so many resources available online now to learn. And so we spent our time teaching them how to do that. And then the other thing we did was right from the time they were in ninth grade, we started working on taking the SAT test. So what I did is- um, Ah, interesting. The college, the college prep who puts out the SAT used to have an app and it had the SAT question of the day. Hmm. And so from ninth grade, we said, I said, all you have to do is answer one question a day. So it's only a little bit of work. But when you start answering a question a day over four years or three years, you start to get the feel of the test. You start to get the feel of the answers. You see where your strengths and weaknesses are. So they both, they weren't perfect, you know, in their test scores, but they were probably top, I don't know, top 5% for test scores because well, they... They yeah, I, I love that. I love that as a concept. Like what you're talking about, just one a day. That's all yeah. you have to do. And if you're really at sea, let's find out why. Correct. Like, 
Mm, and and that. that's the driver of scholarships in most colleges. We weren't going to get needs-based scholarships, right? Mm. Our scholarships had to be merit-based. So we had to pick colleges that gave out merit-based. And most of merit-based scholarship is GPA, SAT score. Mm. So crank out, you know, if you're homeschooled, guess who gets to give you a grade? So that's easy. <laughs> I don't overburden you with work that's useless, right? And yeah. then the second thing you do is practice your test scores so that you get the money. You know, it's really interesting. I was reflecting as you were saying this, that that so many parents come from a place that is assuming their kids are untrustworthy and won't do the work. And it's really... <sighs> It's like the wrong worry. It's like the wrong question. Because if they're not in a useless space doing useless make work, why wouldn't they want to do the work? Why wouldn't they say what you were saying before, which is, give me the book, give me the goal. I'll work on it and try to find some resources if I need them. Like, I often frame it as a trust issue, but it's not even a trust issue. It is, of course they do. <laughs> well, and so here's the, th here's the reward for them. If you can crank this out, learn it, and get good grades... I don't care if you spend your day playing Fortnite. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Go, yeah. And, you know, and, and along the same line, if you're going to play Fortnite, at least win some money. So he does that. But, you know, yeah. I, you have to encourage them and you have to give them freedom. But this is not something that happens at 14. Right. This is something you start teaching at seven. Right. You teach them yeah. at seven. Hey, you're old enough to go get your laundry and bring it downstairs. Right. You're old enough now to put your laundry in the machine and start it. You're old enough now to take care of the whole process. By 10 or 11, I don't need to be doing your laundry. You give them responsibility that's appropriate for their age and then give them freedom yeah. to be able to do that. Show me, show me you'll take responsibility. I'll give you freedom. Yeah. In, yeah, the the laundry one is one of those ones. It's it's interesting you should bring it up. The the laundry one is one of those ones where I meet so many parents who do their kids' laundry. And I'm like, that is, of all the tasks you can give a kid, that has this whole self, what, self-enforcing piece to it. So you have a kid who says, oh, today was red shirt day. And you go, oh, that's a bummer. You didn't get your laundry done. Like, why would you take that on to have a kid now blaming you for not doing it. Just no, they're your clothes. You're going to want them clean. Here's the tools. Off you go. <laughs> in the same thing with school lunches. Like I remember I was sitting there one year and the mother's like, oh, it's, you know, he's graduating. I, I won't be packing school lunches anymore. I'm like, oh, Ooh. I haven't been packing school lunches for 10 years. <laughs> well, and it's a long game. You know, it's funny. Sometimes I feel like I'm walking out of a Jane Austen book because I think we've made these children unmarriageable. Like, how are you going to end up being an, like you're raising adults, right? How do you end up with an adult who can't make his own lunch or can't wash her own sheets? Wow. <laughs> well, and so that that is the the saying, I'm not raising great kids. I'm raising great adults. It's yeah. a very different concept. So and my daughter, like when she went off to college, that was her number one complaint. She's like, I don't understand this. How do these parents send their kids to live in New York City at a school that doesn't have a meal plan? And they don't know how to do their laundry. They don't know how to cook. They don't know how to clean. Like, what did they expect? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, and and who do they expect to do it for them? Like, when, where is this all gonna kind of come together? One thing I want to say before, when you were talking about community college and that your kids had gone, I was just gonna say one of the things I love about that option is that we you mentioned that the you know it's like a hundred and fifty per credit or something. If you pursue something that you turn out to really dislike, you've only dumped you know a couple hundred bucks into it. And can now pivot instead of finding out that you've had the sunk cost of vet tech and you hate it, and you, but you're so far in the loan hole that um, that you got to keep going and get that degree that you wish you hadn't gotten. <laughs> and that's very true. It gives them the time to explore. And it also, like they're home and they're learning how to take college so that when they finally do go, They've got the skills to handle it. Like my kids don't struggle in school. Right. Because they've learned time management. They've learned how to handle the load. My son's going for computer engineering. He doesn't fuss. I mean, that's a hard major. He doesn't fuss over it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. The word that's coming to mind is anti-fragile, right? Mm. It sort of it sort of creates a, a, a an environment where they become resilient, but without I don't know. Sometimes you become resilient because you're undergoing a lot of stress. In this way, it's sort of becoming resilient before you have to deal with the stress. And yeah, they're learning life skills. They're they're learning freedom. They're learning to make choices. And they're you know I think the 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 big thing there is you're showing them respect, and so it creates. The outcome of that is they also respect you because you've shown them that you trust them and you respect them. Mm. Then they want to talk to you. You know, they don't disappear. What a huge gift for adolescent kids, that respect and that and that relationship building. You know, I, I think that we often I, I remember I used to say to my kids in, when they were in high school, I used to say, you know, let's look at history. Kids your age were running kingdoms. This is well within <laughs> your ability. You know, um, Eleanor of Aquitaine was queen of France at 14. I think you're fine doing the garbage. <laughs> You know, but we don't, we, you know, kids have this, and when I say kids, but teenagers have this phenomenal ability that's just stifled rather painfully for so many years. And then they lose interest and then you end up with struggles. So that's why, I mean, because I'm in this money space, because I deal with people who have wealth. You see kids who've been handed everything and they are just, it's, it's a horrible outcome. The parents protected them and the protection has made them so weak as adults. They can't work. They can't do anything. The slightest problem becomes, I need to quit this job or, you know, and you wonder why all these kids don't launch. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting distortion of protection. That protection means like buffering them from sort of the rewarding parts of being your own person, being your own adult, having that having that independence and then saying, oh, that was protecting them. And you're like, well, <laughs> no, you've 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 made it impossible for them to get to that. So one thing I was thinking about is that uh, one thing that I, that I like to ask people is 
when your kids were uh, doing their homeschooling, high school and things like that, a lot of people tell me that the reason that they would homeschool if they could is that they just don't see a time commitment. And I'm always like saying you've, you've got to listen to homeschoolers because the time commitment from the adults is not six hours a day, five days a week plus homework. School takes up that, but homeschooling does not. Is that is that pretty much what you found as well, or were you? I know you took the summers while they were in school and and did a lot of enrichment. But what about when they were homeschooling? When they were homeschooling, my time commitment was probably less than they when they were in school. Hmm. It was very little. P- parents, homeschooling doesn't mean you teach, right? And that's number one, because all my kids had other teachers that were involved that were able to teach them. Plus, they learned a lot more than what you would normally learn in school. I I think the, the bigger time commitment for the parent is finding and working with the kid to get the right curriculum. Mm. And then getting away from like, then you're good to go. Now, when kids are five and six, it's a little different than when they're 15. But I think once you hit, once your kid has the basics, the ability to read and write Mm. and manage a computer by probably, what is that, third grade? Yeah. As long as you've got, don't ask me to grade grammar. I mean, you're not going to get good (laughs) results. (laughs) As long as you've got somebody that's plugged in that can help you with that or you create that type of system, then you're fine. I think it's up to each parent to figure out you can either spend time or you can spend money. So there Mm -hmm. are co-op groups where parents get together and one parent says, look, I can handle math. One parent says I can handle English. One parent says I can do this. The reality, though, comes back to what you said. A school day in school is eight hours because everyone is moving at the pace of the slowest kid. A school day at home, like most kids can probably get all their schoolwork done in two or three hours and then go off and do something else, like clean the house and do their laundry, (laughs) mow the lawn. (laughs) And play Fortnite. Play Fortnite. Well, you know, and one of the things about that, too, is I was thinking uh, the corollary is you're also working at the pace of the slowest teacher. And one of the big advantages in being able to, I don't know, let, let kids' interests off the leash is if a teacher doesn't suit them you just that's that's clearly not a good alignment let's find a, an algebra program that does better by you and and you'll pick up this pace just by losing someone who's not getting through to you in some way well and we all learn in different ways so no school actually matches the kid's personality to the teacher which is mm. the number one problem and in a homeschooling environment your kid can go find the teacher that they relate to the best and you can switch through programs. So they have a lot more flexibility in how they want to learn. The other thing is they need to learn the processes of how to learn. So if you think about this, and I was thinking about this right before we started talking, when my kid was in first grade, the iPhone did not exist, right? Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. whole world, the world has dramatically changed from the time my kid started first grade till the time he graduated high school. Yeah. Now, here's a question to you. 
they are still teaching the same thing in first grade that my son learned. Yeah. 12 years ago, which is pretty much the same thing I was taught 40 years ago, 45, 48 years ago. Right. right? Yeah. So world changed. Education hasn't. They, even for the college level, because my kids were involved in robotics, and it's funny, we would take them to colleges and go, hey, check out this engineering program. And they would see what the students were playing with, and they laughed at them. They're like, those aren't real robots. We're building real robots. Mm. Because the college couldn't keep up with the change of what's going on in the world. They can't keep up with the latest, greatest, build the curriculum and do all of that. Like kids are going to school now for entrepreneurship. I'm like, that's a joke. Why mm. don't you just hand the kid 10 grand and say, go be an entrepreneur, figure it out. Right. You know? and, and screw it up. Learn, and screw it up. Well, that's how you learn up. through your screw ups. Or why are you going to college to learn social media? Here's 10 grand. <laughs> go, go learn social media. Go get a job. Like, I don't, I don't understand why you're spending $150,000. And the school is not at the cutting edge of social media. You want to learn social media, go find the cutting edge people in social media. You can learn from them for free or a lot less than college cost. Yeah. Yeah. That is really funny. I mean, it's, I don't know, the idea of college for social media for digital natives just feels so backwards. And that's the part they can't keep up with. So when my son graduated high school, he already had two summer internships with an engineering company. He already had, he already knew how to run a CNC machine. He knew how to run a laser cutter. He knew how to 3D print because he printed so many different things. He knows how to CAD. He knows how to program. Right. You know, his toy store is McMaster parts. And, and, he knows how to find the parts to build the things. He's already got knowledge that most of these college kids have never had the time or the, the ability to do. And that was because when he was in high school, we went to one of the local universities and we're like, what can he do? And they're like, well, most of our kids don't know how to code when they show up and they don't know how to do this and they don't know how to do that. Um, we don't have any resources for you. I'm yeah. like, this is horrible. Like, what are you waiting for? And that yeah. was my big fight. I'm like, you kids all said you want to be engineers and none of you are building robots. You're like behind the curve already. Right. It's funny. It frustrated the heck out of one of my daughters to have done similar things. 3D printed a prosthetic hand for a child for a charity group. And then, and then was told she went to an institute of technology for a year and she was told there that she couldn't use the machines until she had done this very basic, very like she was like, I'm already well, well ahead of this. And they're like, yeah, but it's mandatory. <laughs> it's like, I have to yeah. pay for this. <laughs> yeah. You have to pay for I got to pay $3,000 to learn what I learned three years ago. No, thank yeah. you. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's, that's really interesting. How do the kids feel about their homeschooling time? Do they, do they have thoughts about it? They enjoy, my daughter loved it. You know, I think my son, I, my son, he was, he, he was advanced enough that he was like, he was okay with it because he knew he was going to hit limits in school. Yeah. And so, you know, he, he wanted to go to school, but he, the only reason he wanted to go to school was because he realized he only would have to take like two classes. He could <laughs> sit around all day. I'm like, no, dude. <laughs> 
That's not happening. <laughs> not happening. On the topic of becoming an adult that children can trust and therefore creating children who are trustworthy adults, let's have a quick talk about the marshmallow test. It was created in, I believe, Stanford in one of their psychology labs. And it goes like this. A child is in a room with a plate and an adult, the data, the researcher, the experimenter, gives them a marshmallow or something else that they like. It doesn't have to be marshmallow, but it's called the marshmallow test. Gives them a treat and tells them if they don't touch it for something like 10 minutes, they'll get two. Or if they don't eat it, they can touch it, smell it, move it around, but not eat it. If they don't eat it, if they don't consume it, they'll get two. But if they do, if they take a bite of it, if they eat it, they only get the one. And the test then tracked and correlated over some years this behavior with greater success in life. And it has been held up for many years as a proof that self-discipline will carry you further in life. In other words, if you're able to make money and save money, that's the marshmallow test that you were thrifty, that you were available to your future self in some way to be able to have the self-discipline to not eat the marshmallow. And then you're rewarded by having two of them. Even if you don't know the marshmallow test, the lessons of the marshmallow test have been passed down through media and, and schools and, and universities for a long time. That is the wisdom and it's proven by science. Except, of course, it isn't proven by science in any way whatsoever. The corollary of the marshmallow test, first of all, is if you trust adults, you'll probably do better over time. But if you grow up with untrustworthy adults, you don't trust adults. Just because somebody comes in and tells you that if you don't touch it, you'll get two later, you have to spend, as a child who is not fully developed by any means, 10 minutes looking at your previous experience, your desire right now, and the odds about whether or not there's going to be some reason not to give it to you. That's the first thing. If you have wealthy parents, they're often in a position to give you something later and to be more trustworthy. So it really correlates with wealthy parents. It correlates with no food insecurity, but it also correlates with no perceived food insecurity. This is one that got me. So first of all, I didn't grow up with trustworthy adults and I know myself as a child I would have eaten the marshmallow. Maybe I had no impulse control, but also I had no reason to think I would get to later. That was not in my experience. People constantly said that something better would come along if I behaved, that then at the last minute, for whatever reason, was not happening. So I had plenty of experience on that. I, there was no reason I would trust some stranger to just do this. And I have to tell you, even beyond my parents, I could name numerous teachers that played this little game too. Lots of authority figures do. So to some extent, 
just being a child aware of your experiences may well blow your marshmallow test. And it may not presage well for the future because you will always approach life with this sense of like undeserving or that things are going to be yanked away from you. And that's honestly not a good way to build a lot of relationships you have with various figures in your life. You know, you come across as having a chip on your shoulder because you do, because of course you do. Trauma leaks. So you won't have as good impulse control if you cannot trust the adults in your life. You may not have good impulse control because you have other things. You have uh, ADHD or other kinds of things in your cognitive past that make it so that this doesn't work. What's interesting is if you can build trust, if you can build a relationship, then the marshmallow test is passable and irrelevant. It wasn't really about marshmallows at all. And it's not about future behavior at all across the board. Sure, certain individuals may be okay with all this. Certain individuals may get around what seem to be similar experiences and do better. What's interesting about that is that it's easy to ascribe that to luck because, of course, it is. But part of luck is being able to recognize and accept luck. And kids who have tested out of the marshmallow test have a higher propensity for neither recognizing nor accepting luck, the good things that happen to them, because they're keenly, acutely aware of how many bad things happen, of the way that bad things happen. This can be generational too. You can end up with a generation that has been so traumatized by events. In fact, the food insecurity one is really interesting to me. I did not grow up with real food insecurity, but my parents did. They were children of the depression and they were not the poorest of the poor, but they were terrified all the time of food insecurity and they did experience some food insecurity. Beyond that, my grandmother came out of Ireland post-famine and the terror of food insecurity, the very real terror of food insecurity, goes all the way back to the 1840s. So even though we had plenty of food, it was spoken of all the time as a limited resource. Okay, that's fine, but something that was going to always run out, something that was just covered by fear and I came from a family of six. If you didn't get a brownie for dessert, it's because you didn't jump in there and grab it fast enough. And then they were gone. That is this weird overlay of artificial food insecurity, even though we truly didn't have it. Massive, massive weight of fear of it. Weird, distorted talking of it. One of the interesting things about the marshmallow test actually is introducing greed, right? You may have a kid who actually is perfectly satisfied with one marshmallow and doesn't end up correlating to whatever that success is later. In fact, maybe one of the outliers that does really well because they're okay with enough. So then if the definition of success is excess, they're not going to score well on that at all. But if you talk to them, they're well-regulated and emotionally centered and perfectly fine. In fact, the test really throws all of those people out. 
I think it's one of those things that's interesting about science. It's particularly interesting about what are considered the soft science. This is why it's soft. There are corollaries that there are final decisions that get made. There are reviews of what all this means, what the evidence displays that didn't go into it at all. I'm very, very cautious about the concept of science as it relates to personality and these kinds of social things, because there's so much we can't account for because we do not know. (laughs) And in the end, the way we know is through the relationship. The centrality of the relationship and the centrality of growth in the relationship is never going to steer you wrong. It's going to help you get out of relationships that don't work. It's going to help you improve relationships that do work. It's going to help turn around relationships that you wish would work but don't. And all of that is going to lead to this lovely point where people say, maybe none of that really is true. Maybe you don't torture kids with a marshmallow. Watching the videos of those kids is painful because the kids with difficulty are in real emotional pain. And having tortured them, maybe we don't make conclusions based on that torture. Maybe we make a relationship, have a trustworthy adult, have a kid that knows that they have people they can truly rely on to not hate them, and then see where everybody goes, then see what success looks like. Maybe ask them at the end of it, what did success look like? That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number nine, to access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.